Oh, hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. For this episode of The Genius Life, I am super excited to introduce you to Dr. Carol Kwiatkowski. Dr. Kukowski is the executive director of the Endocrine Disruption Exchange, a science-based nonprofit research institute to reduce the production and use of chemicals that interfere with healthy hormone function. Prior to joining the Endocrine Disruption Exchange, Carol was an assistant professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, where she developed behavioral interventions to prevent disease transmission. She received her PhD from the University of Denver, where she studied human cognition, learning, and memory. You know I like that. In this episode of the show, you're going to discover the dangerous chemicals that are probably lurking in your kitchen cupboards right now that can have major implications on your health, including sexual development, risk for metabolic diseases, and more. We're going to discuss how you can protect yourself and even potentially purge some of these ever-present chemicals from your system. I got to be honest, guys, I've been kind of obsessed with this topic lately. I mean, look, I'm a nutrition nerd through and through, but healthy living isn't all about nutrition and carbs and fats and macros and calories. What you're going to learn in this episode is critically important for the health and well-being of yourself and your loved ones. And it has little to do with the actual foods that you're eating and more about where the food you're eating comes from, how it's stored and the like. But beyond that, these chemicals aren't just in food. They're in our furnitures. They're used to make pens and CDs and DVDs if anybody still buys those. So listen closely. I have a feeling this is going to be one of those episodes that you come back to again and again. And of course, please spread the message about this episode on social media. Take a screen grab, post it up on your Instagram stories, tweet a link. More people need to know about the dangers of endocrine disruptors. And by spreading the word about this episode of The Genius Life, well, you're going to help that vision become a reality. But before we get to that, do you like nut butter? How's that for a non sequitur? I happen to really like nut butter. It's a very convenient snack and um, can be very nutrient dense. One of my favorite nut butters on the market comes from Perfect Keto, which is a combination of macadamia nuts, cashews, coconut butter, and ketone producing MCT oil. I like to use their nut butter occasionally before a workout or just as a snack if I am looking to hold myself over to my next meal. And sometimes I'll even kick the nutrient density up a notch by adding some additional cacao nibs um, into the mix or mixing some unflavored collagen powder in. It's thin enough where you can mix it in and it doesn't alter the flavor at all. All the nuts used in Perfect Keto's nut butter are raw. And unlike most nut butters that you're going to buy in the supermarket, there is no added sugar, no partially hydrogenated fats. It's just super satisfying and super healthy. If you'd like to give it a try, you can go to perfectketo.com slash max20 or use promo code max20 and you'll save 20% off of everything on their website. They also sell a number of really great collagen powders and MCT oil powder products. They are my go-to manufacturers of any exogenous ketone product. So check them out. Again, that's perfectketo.com slash max20. You'll save 20% off of their nut butters and everything else. All right, guys, we are about to plunge headfirst into the wild and wacky world of endocrine disrupting chemicals. Strap on your seatbelt. This is going to both terrify and empower you. So listen closely and uh, let me know what you think by, again, tweeting at me, sharing this episode, hitting me up on Instagram. I'm looking forward to your thoughts. All right, without further ado, here is Dr. Carol Kwiatkowski, Executive Director of the Endocrine Disruption Exchange. Dr. Kwiatkowski, thank you so much for joining me on The Genius Life. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm super excited to um, to chat with you because I came across your work on a, a presentation about phthalates and bisphenols, and I thought it was mind-blowing. 
And um, immediately after watching it, I reached out to you. And so thank you for taking the time to um, to answer some of my questions. You're welcome. I get that a lot, that the information on our website is mind-blowing. And that's both encouraging and disappointing because I wish it was common knowledge. Yeah, well, we're going to do our part over the next hour. So I guess let's start with um, your background. Why don't you you know, tell my audience a little bit about what it is that you do and how you came to lead the Endocrine Disruption Exchange? Okay. So the Endocrine Disruption Exchange is a science-based nonprofit organization. What we do is share scientific information on hormone disruptors with all different types of people. Uh, we work with people who are writing policy, policymakers, with regulatory scientists, and we raise awareness among the public. And what we're trying to do is to provide science in uh, different ways to make it more accessible. So we make a lot of databases where we um, sort of repackage the science that's produced by you know academic and government scientists. And um, we don't necessarily interpret it. We just try to share it and give people access. And then we, we also do a lot of publishing in the peer-reviewed scientific journals. So we write papers that are reviews, typically, or commentaries. And we host webinars so that scientists can, project, uh, can um, present their research to, directly to people if they're open to the public. And we do podcasts in one of our programs and produce fact sheets. So these are just a lot of ways that we try to take the science and make it publicly accessible. And we also work with other nonprofits to try to um, get this information directly into the hands of policymakers and and people um, who can use it. So that's what we do. And that's a question, but it feels like it was necessary in order to get to the part about how I got to be here, Um, which is, it's an interesting story. I'll try to keep it short, but Um, I was uh, taking a break from my academic career, which was in an entirely different field and and working on prevention behaviors for um, people at risk for HIV. And I was raising my my kids. They were very young. And I I met a woman in this tiny little town in Colorado that she had moved to to retire. And instead of retiring, she set up a nonprofit organization to further the work she had been doing. Turns out that she was a renowned environmental hero. Her name is Theo Colborn. And she was known for having discovered this phenomenon of endocrine disruption. And she was in um, oh, some late 70s, 80, maybe when I met her. Um, and she has a fascinating story behind her. She didn't, she was a pharmacist and then a sheep rancher, and then she was 57 when she got her PhD and, and started looking into this issue, which um, she discovered when she was studying fish and birds living in and around the Great Lakes and um, trying to uh, determine for the people who had hired her whether or not the lakes were clean enough because it appeared that birds and fish were healthy. And But what she discovered was that actually, while they appeared healthy in many ways, their behaviors were a little off and their offspring were not healthy. And she was trying to figure out what was going on with this. So she started looking at other areas of science, pulling together people who studied wildlife, people who studied studied laboratory animals, people who studied things in humans, different types of chemical exposure, and started putting together this hypothesis about hormone disruption. And other people had been talking about it um, a little bit here and there in, uh, in the scientific fields. 
she got some money and and put together a meeting and got all these people from different disciplines together and said, talk to each other. I want you to each give a short presentation and tell each other what you're learning and see what you know comes of this. And they ended up writing this um, consensus statement. It's referred to as the Wingspread Consensus Statement because that's where it was hosted, the meeting. But it was it was this aha moment among all these different scientists that said, this is really a problem. And the heart of the problem is this issue that um, even when chemicals are reduced to very low levels, um, they can still be interfering with the hormone systems of the organisms that are encountering them, whether they're birds or fish or humans or laboratory animals. Uh, and it's specific to you know, messing around with your hormones. So this kicked off the field of endocrine disruption. This was in 1991. And in fact, it went straight very quickly to you know, policy realms where they created at the Environmental Protection Agency the um, uh, Endocrine Disruptor Screening Program. And um, it, it also kicked off a huge backlash from the chemical industry saying, wait a minute, you can't you know, start restricting all of these chemicals that are part and parcel of our lives. And that's pretty much where we've been for 25 years is this battle on the regulatory front to try to control exposure to these chemicals. Meanwhile, the scientists are continuing to just crank out more and more science that are talking about the harmful effects of these chemicals. Um, and now I've gone off on another tangent, but that's the progression of the field of endocrine disruption. I ended up meeting Theo and I was looking for part-time work to get kind of back in the game. Um, I had, a, I think, a two-year-old and a three-year-old at the time. And um, she hired me and uh, pretty much taught me everything I know about this field. She passed away in 2014 and I continued to lead the organization. And in fact, we are now a virtual organization. So we're no longer located in that tiny town in Colorado, um, but we're reaching people coast to coast in the U.S. And um, we even do a lot of work in Europe because they have better, stronger regulations against these types of chemicals um, in Europe. So maybe that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Um, but I so I want to just rewind a little bit because what you suggested was that these hormone disrupt disrupting chemicals have biologic activity far below the threshold for safety in many instances. Is that is that accurate? That is accurate. That's exactly what's going on. And when it comes to these battles being fought between you know academic scientists and the regulatory agencies, that's really where the heart of it is, is they keep insisting that their methods uh, are, are effective at detecting what levels chemicals are safe. And uh, the scientists are arguing that they have done studies showing that they are not safe at these very, very low levels. And the problem is, is that the system that's used to determine the safety, it makes an assumption that high levels of chemicals, high concentrations of chemicals are harmful. But if you decrease the exposure down to very low levels, you'll get to a point at which they're safe. But the endocrine system doesn't really work that way. It's actually what's called a non-monotonic dose response curve so that the response to a particular dose of a chemical changes. It doesn't just go from low to high. Um, at very low levels, it can have a big impact on hormones. At moderate levels, it might not have any impact on hormones at all because the hormone system says, well, this isn't, this isn't right, and it doesn't respond to it. And then at very high levels, it can be toxic. 
Um, but so the, the system by which they say these low levels are safe is just basically flawed. I, I can get into more detail on it, but that's basically the crux of it. And the other piece of it is that the, 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 the tests that regulatory agencies use to measure the safety of chemical exposure are fairly archaic. And they're, they're still doing things. It takes a long time to get a, a test, a particular test they want to use validated. And I, I can appreciate that, but still it's been decades and they're still doing things like administering a chemical to a laboratory animal and then weighing the uterus or weighing the liver. And the weight of these organs is not necessarily reflective of the kinds of um, harm that may be going on in other organs, other systems, and with other outcomes it might be measured. So when you look at some of these other things like breast development and um, brain development, especially when chemicals are experienced uh, in utero in the womb, um, you see changes to the function and structure of these organs. And these just aren't the kinds of things that are being measured by a regulatory tests that determine safety of chemicals. So this is very concerning. Is it gross negligence that they're not testing them in a in a responsible way, or is it just that we don't really have the tools to measure the the entire breadth of how these chemicals affect our biology, or co- a combination of both, maybe? Yeah, I think it's a combination of a lot of things, but in part, it's it's unwillingness to change. I think is part of it, and to really explore the more modern science that's being conducted in academic labs that's being funded by the government. So in some sense, it's, you know, it's government money that's going to determining these tests. These aren't sort of fringe science sort of things. Um, but the, uh, there, there's, so there's, there's that, there's sort of just the old guard of toxicology is having trouble with what is really a paradigm shift in the way that you assess chemicals for safety. And there's also a lot of pushback by the chemical manufacturing industry to say, this isn't a problem. These people don't know what they're talking about. We can't live without these chemicals. We, um, you know, we compromise the safety of our food system if we took them away. And so there's a lot of of that kind of pressure that takes a lot of different forms and keeps us doing things the way they've always been done instead of looking to what really is the most effective way to protect the public health. Wow. So I definitely want to get into um, the chemicals, where they're found, and how we might protect ourselves. But uh, for the listener, can you just describe what the endocrine system is, what it you know, how it functions within the body and the the potential implications for the disruption of that system. Sure. It, it's kind of interesting and surprising to me. It's one of the, I think, the least taught systems of the body. You know, when you're in fifth grade or sixth grade, you learn about the nervous system and the skeletal system, muscular system. And I was happy to see my kids learning about the endocrine system, but I don't think they taught it when I was in school. And the endocrine system is basically your system of hormones. The, there's upwards of 50 known hormones. And the endocrine system is involved in almost anything you could think of in the body. It has to do with 
how organs are formed and grow and develop in, in the womb has to do with sexual maturation. You know, when we reach puberty has to do with fertility, also, you know, brain development, intelligence, mood and bonding behaviors. There's a lot of things that, you know, in our everyday lives, we get checked at the doctor's office that they have to do that, they, that the endocrine system is involved in blood pressure, blood sugar, cholesterol levels, bone density. Um, it's the metabolic system is involved and the immune system, our ability to fight illness and stress. All of these things involve hormones. There are you know, hormones function through this process of there being sort of a lock and key kind of thing where there's a hormone and there's a receptor. And receptors are found in organs all over the body, you know, the heart, the, um, I mean, normally people think of the ovaries and the testes as the endocrine system, primary organs, and also things like the thyroid and the adrenal glands. But there's a lot of other things. Um, even muscle and skin have hormone receptors in them. So it is a major system of the human body. Yeah. I mean, just to, you know, name some hormones that listeners might be familiar with. Insulin is a hormone that regulates fat storage. We have leptin, which helps regulate metabolism. We have ghrelin, which signals, you know, emptiness of the stomach, makes you feel hungry. So, I mean, these are involved in literally every aspect of life, right? And they're, they're long range messengers is how I think of, of hormones. They are secreted in one part of the body and they are meant to have an impact elsewhere. It's the messaging system really that the body uses to communicate to various organs what's going on and how to function. That's exactly what it does. You're absolutely right. And then the usually the sex hormones people also think of are like estrogen and androgen and testosterone and thyroid hormones and um, in addition to the ones you named. So what are the um, some of the more common endocrine disruptors in the environment and where are they found? So the ones that uh, receive the most research attention and are the most well-known, most well-understood are the bisphenols, primarily bisphenol A, which people know as BPA because it's showed up in some labeling of products. <clears throat> and also phthalates, which both of those are found in plastics. They're, they function a little bit differently from each other and they have slightly different health effects. But those are the two most common ones, I would say. There's also you know, pesticides are hormone disruptors, um, flame retardants. There's all sorts of chemicals that are used in um, different consumer products and uh, industrial chemicals that have hormone disrupting properties. We've put together a list of chemicals that we have on our website that is over 1400 chemicals now. Wow. Some of them have one or two studies showing that they affect the endocrine system. Other chemicals have hundreds of studies, particularly like BPA, which despite all of this research has continued not to be regulated wow. by most governments. So corporations have free license to put BPA into products as they see fit? Is that their... their they do. They do. And wow. it's, not, it's not labeled. You know, no one sees BPA in the you know ingredient list or anything like that or on the packaging <laughs> or anything they they've come with um because of consumer pressure because consumers have become aware of it as a harmful chemical and they put pressure on industries that we don't want bpa in our water bottles this happened several years ago they started labeling things as bpa free because they found a substitute unfortunately the substitute they came up with was bps 
And it, they've done iterations of different bisphenols. There are lots of them now. And they're all, you know, turning up to have, not all of them, but most of them have, you know, similarly harmful properties. And so it's a dangerous game of kind of chemical whack-a-mole. And it's, it's not really in the spirit of trying to take out a harmful chemical and do something, create a safer product. Right. It's just pa- about pacifying the consumer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it creates a lot of frustration and helplessness. Um, people who, you know, fought really hard to get BPA-free bottles and that wasn't even anything that was regulated. The industry just started doing that in response to consumer pressure. There are some regulations of things like phthalates and children's toys, um, but it's it's minimal. It's limited. It's certain products, and, and maybe it's in certain states, or um, there's no widespread uh, um, regulation of these chemicals. I did want to say a little bit more. I forgot to mention before, too, sort of what they are. So BPA is a polycarbonate plastic. It's what makes things rigid. It also has great properties of being strong and very clear. So that's why it became in the 40s, sort of being used for plastic production um, because it's worked so well, even though it was developed early in the 30s or even I think discovered prior to that as estrogen. It is an, it's a synthetic estrogen. Happened to be a great plastic chemical. Wow. And phthalates are a little bit different. That's a, what's called a plasticizer because it's added to plastic in order to make it more flexible and pliable. So you see that in these soft children's toys have phthalates in them. And um, it also, interestingly, it helps carry, it's like a carrier for fragrances. It helps them last longer. So phthalates are in um, a lot of different fragrances, which not just colognes and perfumes and things like that, but the dryer sheets and the laundry soap and the dish soap and all the different products we have in our house now that have to be fragranced. So phthalates show up in those things a lot. And the bisphenols, just to jump back to not just the plastic water bottles and containers, but interestingly, they also are used as the coating on cash register receipt paper, the uh, kind that you can actually write on with your fingernail. And that it's not really bound well to the paper. So the bisphenol, the molecules migrate from the paper into your purse, onto your hands. You know, kids play with them, put them in their mouths. It's, it's, there's a, a, a hypothesize that quite a bit of exposure comes from those receipts. And um, the other big exposure source for bisphenols or BPA in particular is that it's used as a liner in food cans. And so when you're eating canned food, you're likely eating some plastic that has leached from the can liner. Wow. Ever since I saw your presentation, I um, have been very cautious about uh, the handling of store receipts. I usually, if it's a small purchase, I say, I don't, you know, if they ask me if I would like a receipt, I say, no, these receipts are, they're coated with these toxic chemicals. I, I agree. And, but also now a lot of people are saying to me to email the receipt and you know, I've gotten kind of used to giving out my email address so that I can do that instead of having to take a paper copy. Oh man, well that comes with a whole different, whole different set of problems. Then you open yourself up to spam and and whatnot. Right, <laughs> right. Um. So and you so you mentioned fragrances briefly. So does that mean that even if you know, I've noticed that a lot of the fragrance-free products are labeled to appeal to those with sensitive skin and the like. But you're saying that basically we should all be opting for fragrance-free whenever given the the option for any of our products. Yes, I think you should always opt for fragrance-free. There's just part of the reason is because of these hormone disruptors that we know at low concentrations can affect our health. 
but also because the fragrances are like one of the most well-kept secrets of the entire chemical world. And they are often made of hundreds of different chemicals in a particular fragrance mix. And nobody can seem to get the uh, proper disclosure of these chemicals to the public. So it's very difficult to, to know what's in any of them. You know, some, there are some companies that are now starting to publish online the chemicals that they use in their fragrance ingredients, but it's very limited. So for the most part, you never know what you're getting in that fragrance. And chances are there are things that are not good for you. And it's, it's not that necessary in my mind. I think we could all live without a lot of fragrance in the world. And, and in fact, you know, I try to, I don't really know how to get this message out to people, but when you wear a fragrance and you go to a movie theater or you get on an airplane or something like that, you are impacting, impacting everyone around you that really has no control over that. And there are likely people who are sensitive to it in the, in the room, in the environment. And it's just really, it's, to me, it's just not fair. Does this apply to, I mean, perfumes and colognes as well? I believe so. Yes. Wow. Crazy. So we've got phthalates, which are plasticizers. They're usually found in soft plastics like water bottles. Um, to, what about re restaurant takeout containers? Are these all common vehicles for phthalates? Uh, to some extent, yes. When it comes to food packaging, the chemicals that people are most concerned about right now are what are called per and polyfluorinated uh, fluoroalkyl substances. Their short term is PFAS, P-F-A-S. And you might be hearing more about those in the news soon because it's the latest uh, chemical of concern because it's being found everywhere. And they're, um, the older legacy chemicals were PFOA and PFOS. And it was determined that they were very harmful to people's health. They're used in, they're, they're grease-proof, waterproof, non-stick, uh, you know, Teflon pan, Scotchgard, sorry to name some brands, but um, those sorts of things. They were like miracle chemicals. These are some of the few chemicals that aren't actually derived from petrochemicals. They were created in the lab, man-made chemicals, and um, they are now showing up. So these older legacy chemicals, which were to some extent regulated, but also in a voluntary phase out from the companies who made them. Um, now have replacements that are, you know, the chemical companies came up with replacements similar to the bisphenol situation that are turning out to be just as bad. We just don't have the decades of science to prove it. But the, the few studies that we have on these different, and there are thousands of different PFAS chemicals, show that they are harmful to health. And so um, they, this is what's being used currently in things like food packaging, food wrappers that have that kind of it might look like paper, but it's got a slick side to it. It's lined. Um, and again, the nonstick pans and um, carpet, uh, non, what is stain-proof carpet and waterproof clothing. So these chemicals are coming out everywhere and it's, they're turning up in, in everyone's drinking water, which is really partly why they're in the news is because local governments are having to deal with them as they're showing up in people's drinking water. And the governments are trying to figure out, well, how do we find a safe level of exposure? How much is it okay to have in your water? We'd like to say none, you know, but they're, um, they're wrestling then with these scientific questions of there are so many different 
PFAS and there's um, not a lot of research on most of them and we want to get them out of the water. And there, there's hot spots where people living near the chemical industries that produce them are finding them at high levels in their water. But then there's other places where they're just, they just seem widespread all over the world, as well as they're used in firefighting foams. And so from that, they get distributed widely. There's a lot of people don't realize a lot of training goes on around firefighting, using the foams um, in the military and with you know, fire stations, fire departments. And um, the good news is, is that they've come up with alternatives that don't have the fluorine in them, but uh, it requires changing laws to say that they're allowed to use those, that they're not because they used to be required to use these foams that, that were based on PFAS. So it gets kind of complicated, but uh, that's the, a very long answer to your question. Wow. When you, when you mentioned that, um, you know, paper products with uh, sort of a slick lining, I immediately thought of coffee cups, hot coffee cups. Yeah. I mean, and heat, correct me if I'm wrong, seems to be a catalyst for the leaching of many of these chemicals into our food. It is. So, so would that be a major source of, you know, these chemicals then? You know, I can't, I can't, I don't know the answer to that specifically around coffee cups and which chemicals are used and if that's what it's leaching from. I think there's, there's really not enough what's called exposure science going on. So there's the scientists who study what are the effects on your health. Um, and we haven't even really talked about that yet. And then there's scientists study, that study how do these things get into the environment? How do they get into our bodies? Where do they come from? It would be really nice if the people who are producing the chemicals or the products could tell us where they're using the chemicals so that we could get a head start. The scientists could get a head start on figuring out where to look for exposure and what we can do to reduce exposure. But that's not really happening. And so it requires some very careful um, study design on the part of scientists to say, how can we figure out, you know, we can measure these chemicals at these levels in human beings. How is it getting there? You know, is it because they're touching receipt paper? Who would have ever thought that? Scientists had to figure that out. Is it because they're drinking it from their coffee cups? You know, is it because they're breathing dust that contains chemicals from everything in your house that is is breaking down in these minute amounts that you don't realize? And all of the, the answer to all of that is yes, um, but it's a little hard to say exactly what's doing what. Yeah, I just want to uh, mention briefly a study that I um, just uh, tweeted out, found that high consumers of food outside of the home, adolescents uh, was, the, was the demographic, had a 55% higher um, level of phthalates compared to those who only consumed food at home. So eating out the, the packaging that um, usually accompanies restaurant foods and especially fast foods really, to me, I would think would be a major vehicle. It is. And it's not just the packaging that you carry home in fast food, but it's the packaging that's storing the products in the restaurant. And it's the delivery. So they even find that in phthalates in cow's milk because of the tubing that runs the milk from the cow to the, you know, the truck or whatever the next step is. It's the whole way down the line. Wow. So can we get into the, some of the consequences of exposure to these chemicals? Yeah, this is where it really um, gets disheartening. Um, a lot of the research that's been done has looked at exposure in the womb. And so that's, that's where we know that these tiny, tiny amounts are having impacts and they're having lasting impacts. So sometimes with adults, you can have an effect of a chemical that shows up, but then it, once you 
the exposure goes away, the effect goes away. But when the effect happens to um, a, a developing, I'll say organism again, it's either you know a, a, a laboratory animal or a, a wildlife animal or a human, the systems are you know growing so fast. You start out as a, a, a cell and then it divides and then divides and divides and then the um, different cells differentiate into I'm going to be a heart cell and I'm going to be a thyroid cell and I'm going to be a muscle cell. And that's a very delicate time in the development during development. Um, when sort of decisions are being made in the body, if you will, about what's going to do what and how then, then they go and they create a heart out of these cells. And when there's chemical exposure at this very low level that impacts your hormones, it can cause, it sort of wreaks havoc. It can cause misdirection. And then you end up with a body that has been formed, you know, kind of under false pretenses. And um, so that's, that's a big concern. And some of the outcomes of that sort of exposure that we measure are um, people that have higher levels of these chemicals in the, in the, in their, well, they're measured in the mom when she's pregnant. They also measure them in cord blood, um, the umbilical cord. They look at hundreds of chemicals are found in the umbilical cords of babies. That's just first off, very um, sad news, but it's true. It's a part of our modern world. Um, but they look at then outcomes later in life and they see um, things like we did a paper, actually, we did a review looking at bisphenol A and its association with hyperactivity and found that it is a, a hazard for hyperactivity, a presumed hazard. Mm. Um, so this is a, a feature hyperactivity of ADHD. So that's one outcome of neurodevelopment, ADHD. There's questions about autism and its relation to environmental chemicals. We are um, about to publish another paper that looks at all the different chemicals that have been studied with their association with autism, because that's a big question in everybody's mind is, you know, where are all these autistic children coming from? And um, uh, thyroid problems are another big one. Um, I mentioned some effects on reproduction. So things like fertility, there was just a news report and I saw it quickly. I don't know the numbers exactly, but a huge drop in fertility recently, which doesn't surprise me. I think we're going to continue to see that. There's big effects on sperm count, sperm count going down. Um, we're also seeing effects in um, baby Boys are born with some what I'll call deformities that's not really talked about much, but there's something called hypospadias, where the urethra doesn't exit the penis at the tip. It's somewhere else along the way. Wow. And then um, undescended testicles is also the incidence of that is going up, and it's associated with, with these hormone-disrupting chemicals. Um Breast development gone awry and the things that are associated with breast cancer is another reproductive outcome. And some of the newest research that's really exploding right now is looking at the metabolic system and associations between these chemicals and things like diabetes and obesity. So it just, again, because the endocrine system affects so many different things, it really runs the gamut. And when you think about during development, all of those cells are kind of, when they're stem cells, they're all the same kind of cell. And then they start to differentiate. So what system gets hit in which individual is, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's all across the board. And it's the kind of thing where you would never really be able to tie, it's difficult to tie that exposure to these outcomes later in life. You can imagine if, if a chemical exposure, like we know that pesticides are associated with Parkinson's disease. Does that come from exposure that might have happened in the womb? Well, it 
it's a long study to look at in the womb exposure to certain pesticides that you may not even know about because your family lived near a farm at the time. And then you get, you know, 60 years later, you uh, have Parkinson's. So that kind of research is very time consuming and challenging to conduct. Yeah. I mean, that's a question that I've asked um, pretty, you know, pretty frequently over the past few years. My mother had a, a Parkinsonian disorder and she also had a garden um, for much of my childhood out in Long Island. And, you know, I, I wasn't paying all that much attention to what she was doing out there, but I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if she were handling some, some chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um, how strong is the link between these types of endocrine disrupting chemical chemicals and cancer? Certain cancers have stronger links than others. It may be because they've been studied more. I'm not really sure. Um, mm. So there is evidence for um, outcomes associated with breast cancer and prostate cancer. Those are the two that I'm most familiar with. We sort of don't pay as quite as much attention to cancer outcomes because that is, again, one of the things that the regulatory agencies focus a lot on. If there are tumors that um, result that are a result of chemical exposure, they have a system to regulate those. But they don't have a, a system, really a good system to regulate these what are called non-cancer outcomes. Um, so... I just haven't studied those quite as much. Got it. That makes sense. So I guess let's shift gears and talk about you know what listeners can do to minimize their exposure to phthalates, bisphenols. I mean, we've already talked about eating home as much as possible, but like, I don't know if you if you feel comfortable speaking personally, but like, what are the kinds of like the things that we are cooking our food with? Like, what? types of pans should we be using? Is any usage of plastic safe? You know, I get asked a lot. I recommend that people use glass instead of plastic, but then I get the question of, well, how do you freeze liquids, right? If you're going to do that in glass, the glass is going to break. So, I mean, what are some real world swaps that we can make to help minimize the exposure that people have to these chemicals? Yeah, well, that you mentioned a really big one. And that was the first thing I did when I started learning about all this. Um, is tried to get rid of the plastics in my kitchen. And, and I thought I felt like it was really easy to do that with storage containers because you can get the glass storage containers. They're not that expensive. They last forever. I don't mind the plastic lid because I just keep that away from the food. I think that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, there's no microwaving in plastic. Like, that's not a good idea. And I... Um, I noticed over the holidays that my parents were using an electric tea kettle that was plastic. So I said, look for a stainless steel tea kettle. So anywhere where you're heating up things in plastic, I think you want to look to eliminate that. And that includes spatulas that you use. I, I like to watch baking shows sometimes. Whenever I see them using different tools where they're cooking with these plastic things, it makes me kind of cringe. Um, there's a lot of use of silicone these days, and I, I just don't know anything about its safety. We haven't seen a whole lot about that. So that's sort of like use your own judgment as to whether you use that or not. I have a silicone spatula that I use for baking. Um, but other than that, I use wooden spoons and stainless steel spoons at the stove, and I got rid of my nonstick pans. I now have one of those, um, uh, ceramic non-sticks that aren't Teflon coated. And I, I don't know anything bad about them. So I, I use that sometimes, but, um, I try to stick to stainless steel and there's some tricks. So 
You, if you're cooking with a stainless steel pan, the key to non-stick in a stainless steel pan is to heat the pan up first and heat it up pretty much to the temperature you want to use it at. Get it pretty hot because metal does expand. And so this minute little expansion seals all of the gaps that are what causes food to stick. So if you can tighten that up by heating it up a little bit first, then put your oil in to tighten it up before you put any of the fat in there, whatever you're going to cook with. You, it, it works nonstick. So that's a, a, that's a little life hack. And um, the other one is you mentioned not freezing glass, but I've actually frozen soups and things in glass lots of times. I use those heavy duty jelly jars, you know, the mason jars, and I, you leave a big gap at the top so that the, the what's in it can expand. Mm. Only once did I have a glass crack. Other than that, I haven't ever had any trouble with it. Um, so that's a, that's a big one is get rid of the plastic and um, nonstick. And, oh, I would say also the canned food. It, that it's, I can't find another option. It's hard to find op- another option for things like canned tomatoes sometimes. But most of the things that you want to eat in a can, now you can also find them in um, glass or in those Tetra Pak type of things, those cardboard packs, which I think they're okay. I don't actually know what they're lined with. So if you're going to do that, keep your eye out for any news that that's not good either. Um, But I would definitely avoid canned food if you can. You know, canned vegetables, go for frozen. They're just, they're better. I'm glad you brought up tomatoes. Um, I believe I've seen some research. I could be conflating um, when I was looking into cast iron pans because I you know, I've used cast iron pans um, quite a bit, but I became concerned about the excess iron that gets leached into the food when you cook with a cast iron pan. And as a male, I don't think that having too much iron um, is a good thing, you know, unless you're giving blood regularly. But uh, isn't it true that um, fattier foods and foods that are more acidic have a higher tendency of leaching these fat-soluble compounds like phthalates and, and bisphenols? They do. They do. And that's why I wanted to get rid of the canned tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, they're very acidic. So that is, it is true. And even if you're not heating food in plastic, if you put hot food, you know, like the, the leftovers from your meal prep that you're going to save for tomorrow into plastic, that also... Um, yeah. Carries a risk. That's where you can get those glass containers. I mean, they take up a little more space in your kitchen, but and they're heavier. But for just putting leftovers in and putting in the fridge and then being able to microwave them later, they're much um, much safer than the plastics. What do you do when you're out traveling and you get thirsty and you want to buy a bottle of water? I mean, granted, we we're not going to be able to eliminate all of our exposure to these chemicals in 2019. But um, do you? drink bottled water. What's the, what's your take on that? I carry a stainless steel water bottle pretty much everywhere I go. So I, I lived in Colorado for so long. It's very dry. So a lot of people carry a water bottle around with them. Um, and I just got used to it. Uh, I don't buy, so I don't buy bottled water out of the house. Uh, I have on occasion, like when I go into a restaurant, if you're at a fast food restaurant, I just get a cup and get the water out of their pot machine. Um, yeah. You know, a, a bottle of water is not going to kill you. We're, we're all just working to lower the levels that we know are in us. You know, 95% of people have bisphenols in them 
and phthalates and all of these chemicals show up in very high percentages of the population. So we're trying to reduce those levels as much as possible. And um, it, you also don't want to stress yourself out so much trying to get rid of every little thing that you're then, you know, you have stress hormones, which aren't good for you at elevated levels either. So you have to kind of find the balance. Right. Are you aware of any research on how we might, for lack of a better term, detox and and maybe purge some of these chemicals if we have had high exposures in the past? Many of these chemicals, if you if you do a search for blood, sweat, and uh, urine studies, you can see that many of them actually come out in sweat. And I'm a big fan of saunas, and you know I'm under the the presumption that using a sauna, sweating you know, just one of the many benefits that you get from using a sauna or performing vigorous exercise that you are able to, you know, potentially get rid of some of these chemicals through your sweat. So I I think saunas are great too. I don't know a lot about their detox properties for these kinds of chemicals, but to eliminate the things, especially the ones I've been talking about, like bisphenols and phthalates, it's not that hard. What you have to do is stop the input, stop the exposure. Your body metabolizes and process and eliminates them within a couple of days. So these are not persistent pollutants. That's partly also why the government hasn't paid as much attention to them because they're trying to regulate things that are building up in people's bodies and building up in the food chain. And then you have really high levels and those are hard to get rid of. Um, and some of the, the perfluorinateds that I talked about do that. They stay in the body for a while, but the bisphenols and the phthalates are eliminated quickly. So it's amazing that we still have 95 plus percent of people that have them in their bodies. And it's just because exposure is so constant. So they've done um, some research studies showing that if you put people on diets that are designed to eliminate these things in your um in your food, any, whatever source you can, whatever chemical they're focusing on. You know, I talked about different exposures. I didn't mention cosmetics, but there's a lot of phthalates and cosmetics too. So they do people on certain cosmetics. They'll do people on certain food diets without the packaging and without the canned food. And the levels drop dramatically within a couple of days. I don't actually know the time frame of all the studies, but fairly quickly. So then if you can just stay on that, then they put people back on their normal diet and the levels go up again. So that is kind of good news because if you can find these sources and, you know, I'm not being completely comprehensive here. So I would go online and look things up and, you know, find out what, um, where you, where are these, what, where they're coming from in your life? You know, what are you using that might be exposing you to these things and start decreasing that you can make a big change fairly quickly. That's amazing. Are there any brands of cosmetics out there that are, you know, anything to look out for on, um, packages for people that, you know, that use cosmetics that would indicate a safer brand over another? What I've noticed with cosmetics is there tend to be super health conscious ones that will say phthalate free, paraben free, all the, you know, free everything. We don't have anything in here. Um, and then there's the other ones that don't say anything. And there's also a huge price point difference. So it makes it kind of difficult to say, I'm going to go with, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put my money into this, you know, eyeliner or whatever it is that costs four times as much. And they want you to throw away your cosmetics every six months because of bacteria and whatnot. Um, the, the good news about it is that you don't have to figure out which chemicals to avoid and which not to, because it's sort of an all or none thing, what I've seen in the cosmetics world. So it's kind of good and bad. If you can afford it, you can do the others. I, I think if you can't, um, 
it's hard to know because there aren't labeling laws. That's one of the things I think is really important that if you can speak out about is, is labeling laws because consumers should have the right to choose. And we can't choose if we don't know what's in what product. So nobody's labeling their products as having these things. There's just companies that are saying, oh, we don't have this, but you don't know what's in all the other ones. Well, we're running out of time. Um, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to mention? I mean, I think your work is so important and um, you know what you do at the Endocrine Disruption Exchange is there anything that that you feel needs to be amplified that we haven't yet touched on? I, there's, this is sort of a minor point, not a big picture effort, but um, another exposure reduction thing we didn't talk about was cleaning products. And so when I was thinking about my my kitchen and my household and how, how I avoid things is that there are a lot of things that you use in your house to clean that have these chemicals in them that aren't good for you. And so... Um, trying to make, I mean, I used to use vinegar and, you know, baking soda, things like that, buying the healthier cleaning products without the fragrances, always without the fragrances is a really important step. And something you can do completely for free is to dust well. I kind of touched on this a little bit because um, house dust contains bits of all these things that your house is made of. These chemicals are also migrating, like I said, from your carpet and from all the plastic furniture people sometimes have. And, um, people, when you measure exposure of different chemicals in people, you find out that some of these things like benzene and toluene are four times higher in indoor air than they are in outdoor air. Oof. And people, these are chemicals that come out of your tailpipe in your car usually. And so people think that the outdoor air pollution is the problem, but indoor air pollution of off-gassing from chemicals and then getting things in your dust is a lot higher. So we have to be aware of that and trying to keep our homes free and clean too, to sometimes, you know, unless you're living along a busy highway, open your windows, freshen up the air, dust frequently, use a, use a wet dusting system where you have a damp cloth. You don't even have to use, you know, products or anything and vacuum often with a HEPA filter and try to make an environment, especially if you have kids, you know, that, um, has, that minimizes these chemicals. That is super important. Um, Vinegar is a wonderful cleaning uh, aid and you can just dilute it with some water. And I mean, I use it. It works, you know, on tables. It works on glass. Um, that's great advice. Would you recommend an air filter? I sometimes use uh, an air filter and, um, you know, I find that it, it helps me sleep better at night, but I don't know if I'm, uh, if that's something that you would recommend. Those sort of in-room air purifiers? Yes. Yeah, so um, Theo, to bring back our founder, um, always swore by it. I and They're awfully expensive. I happen to have one now, but I, I didn't in the past. And it's one of those things that I think if it, it's probably doing some good. It's a little hard to tell, and it's going to definitely filter out the big things. Whether or not it filters out endocrine-disrupting chemicals, I don't know. It's probably healthier to use one than not, um, and maybe even more for people who have um, you know, are concerned about breathing. Yeah. I'll put a, a... <laughs> I, okay. We can't end on that. We can't end with me saying for just for those people who are concerned <laughs> about breathing. <laughs> we're everybody needs to be concerned about breathing because when you stop breathing, <laughs> you stop living. We're all concerned about breathing. Yes. Yes. Um, I'll just add, I, the air filter that I use, I'm going to put a link to that uh, in the show notes to, um, this episode that if you're listening to this, you can go and check out, uh, I've, you know, show notes for every episode at maxlugavir.com, which is my website. So, you know, for what it's worth, the air filter that I use, I'll put a link up to that. Um, 
Well, uh, this was really fascinating and, you know, terrifying on the one hand, but also very empowering. So uh, I just want to thank you for your work. And before I ask you the final question, which I ask to everybody who's on this podcast, how can listeners connect with you if they want to or if they have follow-up questions? But more importantly, how can listeners support the work that the Endocrine Disruption Exchange is doing? Well, our website is the answer for all of those, uh, for both of those questions. So the simple one is TEDx.org, T-E-D-X, sort of like the TED Talks, but .org. EndocrineDisruption.org will also get you there, and um, that has lots of different information. There's a basic fact sheet on endocrine disruption. Um, We also have an oil and gas program that talks about uh, fracking and petrochemicals and where these chemicals come from, where they originate, that end up being the chemicals that are in our homes. And uh, we have a donate button because we survive on donations and foundation grants and and contributions from people. So um, we would greatly welcome anybody who wanted to support our work that way. That's awesome. Well, my my listeners, I'm sure, are going to uh, check you guys out and um, help in whichever way they can. The last question that gets asked to everybody who's on this podcast is a little more philosophical. What does it mean to you to live a genius life? To me, that means always trying to be better, to be healthier, to take care of yourself better, to learn more about your world and how you can make it a better place. That's how I would define living a genius life. Well, that is beautiful. Again, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Kwiatkowski. Thank you for doing the work that you do. And to everybody out there listening in podcast land, As always, I value your time and attention. Please take a moment to share this episode on social media, tag um, the Endocrine Disruption Exchange. You know, if you happen to tweet the link, take a screen grab, post it up on your Instagram stories, help spread the word about this. It's, uh, I think, critically important and one of the topics that I think is under discussed in um, health and wellness circles. You know, I mean, being healthy is not all about. Um, macronutrients and calories and protein and carbs and fat, you know, I mean, this is a critically important aspect of the conversation that is not being had enough. So um, please do what you can to spread the word. And uh, this has been another episode of The Genius Life. Peace, guys.